What is up, everybody, and welcome back to episode 77 of the Jake Podcast. Uh, it is Thursday, May 9th. We are already whipping through May, one of my favorite months of the year. So, uh, pretty pumped up. April flew by this year. You know, you had Avengers, Game of Thrones, the NFL Draft. You know, you have two playoffs starting with the NBA and NHL. Then you also have... You know, baseball season kicks off, and the Masters was great this year with Tiger winning. So, a lot of things going on in April that made it fly by, and and now already May is flying by. You know, so uh, pretty cool stuff. Going to get to uh, all of that in just a second. Uh, got a fun top five this week, inspired by uh, recent cooking. I cook now; it's a pretty cool development in my life. Uh, now that I'm a homeowner, uh, I really like to save money by buying groceries and then meal prepping all week shout out to my girlfriend who's very good at that but uh we'll do a top five on that we'll do the one minute movie review which is gonna probably take about 15 minutes because avengers endgame wow i mean what is there to say it was just a phenomenal movie a lot of build-up a lot of hype and uh it delivered totally delivered so i'll get to that uh towards the end of the episode but first want to get to my favorite sporting event of the year and it's the NFL Draft. Now, if you've been following along on uh, on Instagram, on Twitter, on the podcast, you will know that I actually decided to watch Avengers Endgame live, or not live, but opening night, Thursday night, in the theater, and that was going to take me out of at least half of the first round of the draft, and uh, it was a tough decision this year to do that because I've always watched the draft. This was the first time since 2002 I wouldn't be watching the first round. And uh, it's, it's a big deal for me because I've always looked at the draft as a sign of hope. Uh, as a Browns fan, I always kind of just appreciated the draft as a, hey, this could be our turning point. But uh, things are different now, you know, with uh, Baker Mayfield, Miles Garrett, Freddie Kitchens, Odo Beckham Jr., all these guys already on the Browns, no matter who they were going to get at number 17, he wasn't even going to be probably a top 10 Brown this year. So, I, you know, you just look at it and you say, you know what, maybe uh, this is a good year to trade out of the first round, which John Dorsey did. Uh, got Odell Beckham, which, you know, it is the trade is looking better and better by the day. And I'll get to why in a minute. But uh, I thought it was a good year to miss, and I was happy because I actually came back with my girlfriend after the movie was awesome, uh, and I came back, and it was only pick 15, so I was like, all right, still got a good amount of draft to watch, watched the second and third round the next night, and uh, and called it, but lots to love about this draft, lots I didn't love, uh, seemed like Nashville had a pretty great setup, although the crowd didn't seem all that into it. Uh, would like them to bring it back to the Northeast, but I fear that might be a while. I thought Philly was always great at, uh, was great at hosting it the one year they did it. Um, even Dallas did a pretty good job, and Chicago definitely did a great job. But uh, after New York blew it, uh, and the reason they blew it too was unbelievable. I mean, they had their like April spectacular, like Easter show at Radio City, and they weren't willing to move those days and the traps like well we're this weekend if you don't want to host you don't have to host and uh the nfl called their bluff moved it and now it's an outdoor event and nashville looked like it was a lot of fun would have been a great one to be at uh kyler murray first overall pick arizona cardinals this wasn't much of a shock uh a lot of people were trying to pump up other possibilities very late in the process but as we've seen the last couple of years, uh, outside of John Dorsey holding on tight to that number one pick, which, uh, you know, if you paid attention to John Dorsey, it made sense that it was Baker Mayfield the whole time. But, um, you know, there was a lot of speculation on Darnold, Josh Allen, but it was it was always Baker Mayfield if you just studied John Dorsey. The year before that, Miles Garrett, people tried to pump up Mitch Trubisky. We all knew that wasn't happening. Year before that, uh, you had Jared Goff. It was really Goff versus Wentz, but Goff got leaked out, and it was like, you know, it makes a lot of sense to Jameis Winston. A lot of the picks, you get a lot of this late trash being thrown at you, but you know what? It, you oh, Stick to your guns. You know who it was going to be. Uh, I love the pick. A lot of people think the moment they took him, wow, this was such a disservice towards Josh Rosen, and 
maybe it was, but you know what? It's 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 Steve Kimes' job to do what's best for the organization. Just because he went out and got himself a franchise quarterback last year doesn't mean you pass on a on a better franchise quarterback this year. So yes, it does look stupid in retrospect to be going after two quarterbacks like that, but he didn't know he was going to be in position to draft Kyler Murray the next year. So I respect what Steve Kime did. He didn't just stick with Josh Rosen because he already had him and then let Kyler Murray go to Oakland and, and kill it there. He said, no, I, I we are going with Kyler Murray. Could he have handled the Josh Rosen thing better? I don't know, to be honest. Like, what would what does everyone want him to say? You know, so what ended up happening is they traded Josh Rosen Friday night to the Miami Dolphins in the middle of the second to third round. And yes, you didn't get a lot of value for him, but you know what? No one was going to pay. And sooner or later, you're going to have to get rid of him. I don't love the trade value that they got, but it had to happen. And they just signed Kyler Murray 20 minutes ago to a big, fancy, shiny rookie contract. And uh, this is the move they're going with. And I appreciate for them for doing that. Uh, Next was uh, Nick Bosa. That was no surprise. We all called that. And Quinn Williams after that. The only surprise that I had through the first four picks was that Cleveland Farrell went and nobody traded up for Dwayne Haskins. Now, Dwayne Haskins, that was one of my big misses in the first round this year. I thought someone was going to have to move up for Dwayne Haskins. They didn't, and the Redskins got him at 15, which was kind of a surprise to me. I thought if they wanted him, they are going to have to move up because somebody would move up. But I guess the love for Dwayne Haskins wasn't that much because the Broncos could have had him at 10. And they moved down to 20, knowing that they weren't going to get him. So they must have not loved Dwayne Haskins. The Bengals passed on him at 11. The Dolphins decided to trade for Josh Rosen the next night. And they could have had Dwayne Haskins. So I guess the love wasn't really all there for him. Giants could have had him at 6. They decided to go in a different route. After Cleland Farrell, which surprised a lot of people, went 4 and... Number five went um, Devin White, which I called again. So I was four out of five on those picks. Uh, the Giants could have taken Ed Oliver, which I thought would have been the best pick at that point because he's the best player and they could really use a defensive lineman. Josh Allen, who would have also been a slam dunk pick because he's the best pass rusher in this draft. Or they could have even gone with Dwayne Haskins and uh, been happy there, but they ended up going with Daniel Jones, and that was a head-scratcher. Now, I called that pick, so this would have made five out of six picks for me. And uh, a lot of people thought that was crazy. A good friend of mine is a big Giants fan. He said it wouldn't happen. No quarterbacks would go that high outside of Kyler. And uh, I said, no, they're going to take them. And I was listening to too many people, and, and I'll shout out Chris Sims. He was the one that sold me on it. They just... They sold themselves on Daniel Jones in the process. And when you sell yourself on a guy, when you say, you know what? He is our guy. He's what we want. We don't care if someone's better than him. We know what we're getting with him. And they decided on that. And you're not going to wait for that at 17 when you could get it at six. So while I don't like the prospect in Daniel Jones, I like the philosophy that Gettleman took. I was frustrated when people said last year that the Browns should just, uh, you know, take Saquon Barkley at one and ba- and whoever was left at four at quarterback. Uh, that drove me insane because, to be honest, it's all about the quarterback. We're in a quarterback-driven league. You got to go get the quarterback. Now, if you're wrong, it's a, you're going to get fired. But at least you like went for it instead of oh, you know, maybe we'll get him later. Maybe we'll get him with our next pick and then someone else jumps in front of you and takes him. you crazy. Like, no, when you see the quarterback that you like, you go take him and uh, you don't let a running back decide your draft. So I didn't like Daniel Jones, but I do appreciate the philosophy that they went. Um, You know, going in with Dan Jones, if you're the Giants, I compare it to, a bad hand of guts, right? 10 high in guts. It's really risky to stay in with 10 high, you know, because you know there's a lot of things that are better than that. But you know it can still win a good amount of hands. You shouldn't do it, 
But if you read the room and you figure out by looking at all of your opponents that, you know what, I'm actually going to win this one. And that's what David Gellman said is, I, I am going to win with Daniel Jones. Like, he can lead this team surrender, going under Eli Manning and handing off to Saquon Barkley 30 times a game. And, and they're calculating that they're not going to go for a huge explosive offense, but Daniel Jones is going to be like an Eli Manning. And Eli was a much bigger prospect than Daniel Jones, but I appreciate the thought of where they might be going. And if it works, you turn out to be a genius. So I don't hate the Daniel Jones pick philosophy. And if David Gellman's right, good for him. Uh, I just think he took a risk. And uh, hey, we'll see. Because if he's if he's not better than Dwayne Haskins, that that's going to cost him his job. And you know what? Dwayne Haskins ended up going to the Redskins. So they're going to find out on the field if they were right or wrong. It's not it's not going to be a head scratcher. It's going to be in your face in the division because they're going to have the same opponents. They're going to go up against each other, and you will know. Like let's. Hopefully they're both starting next year. I would like to see them both squaring off against the Eagles and the Cowboys and then facing each other. I think that'd be really fun. Uh, anyway, so moving along, they passed on Ed Oliver. They passed on Josh Allen, which means the Jaguars were able to take Josh Allen. They ran to the podium to take him. And uh, and then the Detroit Lions, I thought were going to take uh, Ed Oliver. Instead, they went TJ Hawkinson. And, uh, and the Bills went Ed Oliver. So... I thought the Bills were going to get Hawkinson, and I th- and and um, and I thought maybe Oliver would go eight, where there was a possible trade up with the Falcons. That was my pick. So those guys just flip flopped, and then you had a big trade up for Devin Bush from the Pittsburgh Steelers. I thought that was a big trade. I thought that was a good get for them. Now it's sacrificing a lot, so he better be worth it for the the Steelers because they basically traded the Antonio Brown Hall to move up to get him. So, I mean, that that end, better end up being worth it because they gave up one of the best players in the NFL f- to make sure they go and get him. Anyway, um, not going to go through all 32 picks, but I do want to point out teams that I liked what they did and teams where I didn't like what they did. Now, we'll start off with who I liked. I really liked the Arizona Cardinals. They went out and they got their quarterback that they wanted, Kyler Murray. No matter who you have, you need to make sure you're doing what's best for the franchise. And they believe Kyler Murray is the future of the NFL. He is a playmaker. He can make plays with his feet. He's better than Lamar Jackson. He's Lamar Jackson, but with like Baker Mayfield throwing accuracy. Um, I think he's going to be great. I think... As long as you protect him, which was a big question last year, but they had a lot of big injuries on the offensive line. If you protect Kyler Murray, and if Cliff Kingsbury runs the type of offense that he can run, uh, that he ran at Texas Tech, I think you're going to see some really good things out of the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, you know, not It won't lead to a ton of wins early on, but I, I, I like what they did. They had to move on from Josh Rosen. Uh, they didn't get a ton of great value, but what did they get with the picks? I really liked. Byron Murphy, quarter, corner out of Washington, they got in the first pick in the second round. He might have been the best defensive back in the class. I thought he was going to be the first D-back taken. He's very physical. He's I just love his game, and I think he's going to be a longtime starter in the NFL. Zach Allen of Boston College might not be an immediate starter, but I loved his physicality and his tenaciousness, um, and a, I was a big fan of his. Love when D-linemen have single digits. Deontay Thompson and Michael Dogby were the other defenders that they got in this draft. Now, Deontay Thompson, at a time, looked like a possible first-round pick out of Alabama, and instead they got him in round five. So I thought that was great value, and then... Getting Michael Dogby in the seventh round, one of the last picks of the draft, I thought was a huge steal as well. He doesn't have the production that you're looking for, but in a big defensive line draft, 
They got one of the hidden gems at defensive tackle. He is a super athlete, and I think he's got a lot of potential to do some real damage in the NFL. So on the defensive side of the ball, they got four guys, Murphy, Allen, Thompson, and Dogby, that I'd be really excited for on any team. Then on offense, I mean, you you had some offensive line problems last year. You didn't need to fully attack it, and I'm glad they didn't panic. What they did do, however, is they recouped a lot of weapons. So they drafted Andy Isabella, Hakeem Butler, and Keyshawn Johnson. I forget how you pronounce this Keyshawn because it's K-E-E, Sean Johnson. Maybe it's Keyshawn Johnson. I've heard people pronounce that. You got three wide receivers that everyone liked. In a heavy wide receiver draft, they got Andy Isabella, the fastest player in the draft. And then you got Hakeem Butler, who was the biggest receiver in the draft. Uh, Both guys have their question marks, but great possible weapons for Kyler Murray. And with Larry Fitzgerald kind of on his last legs and Christian Kirk kind of there stepping up as the next wide receiver, this was great. I I love when you surround a young quarterback with a good offensive line and good weapons, you know, or a, a number of good weapons. Not you don't need to go out there and trade up and get a Larry Fitzgerald. You need to get him a bunch of guys around him so that they're always playmakers on the field. And I think they did a really good job with that. And I was a big fan of Andy Isabella's. Uh, both of those wide receivers were on the All Jake team, by the way. So just keep that in mind for how much I like those guys. Um, they also got Lamont Guyard, and uh, I didn't know much about Joshua Miles out of Morgan State, the tackle. But Guyard, center out of Georgia in the sixth round, I thought was a great value because he could possibly turn into a starter one day. And to get possible starters in the sixth round, I think that's such huge value because those are shot-in-the-dark picks at that point. Um, I loved that pick. And then Caleb Wilson, the Mr. Irrelevant, was a tight end that, in a very strong tight end draft, uh, I've seen him going in round four, and they got him with the Mr. Irrelevant pick. Love what the Cardinals did. Uh, I I can't gush over it enough. Uh, The next team that I really liked what they did, and it's funny because they're like the opposite of the Arizona Cardinals, is the New England Patriots. Now, the Patriots in the first round took Nikhil Harry, out of Arizona State, my next and third uh, all-Jake offense wide receiver. Uh, he's just got such great, uh, man, what's, like, like range. He's got great, like, his catch radius, thank you, sorry. Uh, reminds me of, like, Justin Blackman. And if you just throw it in his vicinity, he's going to catch it. And what's Tom Brady do? do? Does great. He gets it to his receiver where they want it. Um... You know, he's not going to play his whole career with Tom Brady. Tom Brady's got a couple good years left before it's over. But this was a nice big target that they went out and got and uh, definitely will help their offense where they were kind of missing some size at the wide receiver position. And without Gronk, they definitely needed to get that. Also on the defensive side, though, before going into the rest of the picks, Joan Williams was a slower corner out of Vanderbilt, but... He was rated very highly before the slow number came in. And when it comes to D-backs, it always seems like the Patriots know what they're doing. So if they can get his speed behind him, I'm sure they know how to use a guy like Joe Juan Williams, who is going to be pretty good. And Chase Winovich, that was the most Patriot pick of all time. Uh, I know, you know, taking a white linebacker for the Patriots and comparing him to Clay Matthews Jr. is very, like, cliche type stuff, but... I mean, he's a very good pick. He, he should have been in the second round. He went at a 77th overall. I thought that was a great value for the Patriots. Then they also got, um, on the uh, on the offensive side of the ball, they, uh, they got Damian Harris running back out of Alabama. They got Jared Stidham, quarterback out of Auburn, to... Like tough players that you like that have proven themselves in the SEC that aren't going to be asked a lot on that Patriots team. So I thought that's a nice investment to kind of put them on the back end of the roster and see what you could possibly get out of them. Yadni Kajust out of West Virginia and Hjalt Frohart 
uh, out of Arkansas are two offensive linemen that aren't going to be asked to start right away on the Patriots team. But if they could develop them, it, it would be it would be huge. Yanni was one of the off like least experienced offensive linemen. He had a position change. He hasn't been at tackle very long. And he could end up being a huge steal taking at 101 when a lot of people mad him in a top 50 player. And uh, you know what? This was just a case of the Patriots added a lot of guys that could help them. Uh, they didn't go and in for like a slam dunk. They didn't draft overdraft a quarterback as a like future Tom Brady replacement. Instead, they took him in the fourth round at the end of the fourth round. I thought that was a much better job instead of taking you know, Ryan Finley at the end of the first, they took Jared Stidham at the end of the fourth and they just added guys that are going to be able to help them right away. Uh, and my third and final team that I really liked what they did. I mean, who do you think I was going to say? I love what the Browns did, you know, put aside the fact that they got Odell Beckham jr. In this draft and they have him for the next five years under contract. And he's already made two pro bowls and he's one of the best wide receivers in the league. Put that aside right there. The Browns also got Greedy Williams at 46 overall, and that would have been okay at 17. If the Browns got Greedy at 17, you would have said, good pick, solid pick. They got him at 46. They only had to use a a late fifth to move up from 49 to 46 to go get him. He's happy to be here. He was super pumped when they drafted him, and and it just seems like a great fit already because him and I I really wanted Justin Lane. I knew that going into the process. I was like, man, Justin Lane would be a great combo with uh with with Denzel Ward. And I kind of just made up the, my mind that I'm like, you know what? They're not gonna end up getting Greedy Williams because he's a first rounder. But they end up getting Greedy Williams, who's the possibly better corner. I know he has questions on his tackling. But I just think that was the style play he, like they had him do. If he is asked to do the right thing in Cleveland, and if Steve Wilkes uses him as a man-to-man corner and doesn't force him to do too much zone, you're going to be very happy with that cornerback combo. So then the next few picks that the Browns got, I don't care what order they came in. Sheldrick Redwine, safety out of Miami. Mac Wilson, linebacker out of Alabama. Sione Takitaki, linebacker out of BYU. And, and add Greedy Williams to that. The thing that you get from these first four picks, the Browns got alpha dogs. It was very important early on to the Browns that they said, listen, we want guys that when they go out on the field, they are taking charge, they're taking control, and they don't back down from any, anybody. They wanted alpha dogs, and that's exactly what they got. Uh, Sione Takitaki, did they draft him a little early? Maybe, probably, but I still like what they did because of the alpha dog mentality. This guy was a tough motherfucker at BYU. And so was Mac Wilson, Alabama, that they got in round five. If you just swap Mac Wilson and Sione Takitaki, I mean, no one argues. And you say, wow, great pick for Mac Wilson in round three and Sione Takitaki in round five. And Sheldrick Redwine, that guy lays the lumber. And from the U, Alonzo Highsmith University, no one's arguing any of these picks. Four right out the bat defensive players. The Browns did not need a lot of help on offense. They needed to get guys on defense, and they attacked their back seven by adding four guys that are going to help right away. They also added Austin Seibert, which a lot of people say, drafting a kicker in the fifth round? Well, If the Browns had a league average kicker last year, they might be in the playoffs. It's that true. I'm I'm not even, it's not even hyperbole because they missed four kicks against the Saints. They missed a kick in overtime against the Steelers that would have won the game. If they had a good kicker, they would have beaten Oakland. And if they had a good kicker, they would have beaten Tampa. And there are other games that they missed kicks too. Maybe if they had a real kicker, they would have kicked at the end of the Ravens game instead of going for it on fourth down. So there were wins left on the table that they lost because they didn't have an NFL kicker. You know, they cut Zane Gonzalez. Zane Gonzalez then says he was hurt. He goes to Arizona, and he kind of does an okay job 
for the Cardinals. They pick up Greg Joseph, who does kick the game winner against the Ravens early in the season, but outside of a very ugly game-winning kick, um, had a very bad season. So they went out and they got a kicker. They needed a kicker. Good for them. If Seibert is a good NFL kicker, just good, not even great, not like Phil Dawson, not Hall of Fame kicker, just a good kicker, it's a great pick because the Browns need stability at that position. And then their last two picks, I really like Drew Forbes. He was Peter King's player X. Uh, that's what really sold me over on this draft was the fact that you know I hadn't heard about this offensive lineman out of southern Missouri, southeast Missouri, sorry. Um, they call it SEMO. But when I heard that he was player X and he was the guy that's been getting all this love, he's like a genius and a mauler. It's a great combo and uh, really happy to have him in Cleveland. And Donnie Lewis out of Tulane, seventh round pick, practically an undrafted free agent at that point, but I just love doubling up a D-back. I really like that the Browns went after defense, really went after defense. It would have been fun to draft a wide receiver in this wide receiver heavy draft. It would have been great to add a defensive tackle in a defensive tackle heavy draft as well, but the Browns went after their needs because for the first time since I can remember, the Browns are in a position where they don't have to take the best player available. They can draft based on need, and they ended up getting some really great players out of it. So very happy with what the Browns did. Now, I don't want to pick on anybody, but there are a couple teams that I did not like what they did. I'll start with the Cincinnati Bengals, one of the Browns' rivals. Uh, Jonah Williams, fine pick, nothing sexy, but, I mean, they just invested $7 million a year in Bobby Hart and then go out and pick Jonah Williams in the first round. It's like they could have gotten a better offensive line in the first place and wouldn't have had to take Jonah Williams. He's a pretty good player. He's, he's pretty versatile. Um, not exactly one of my favorite linemen in the draft. So to take him at 11 seemed a little high. But that's fine. Maybe you t- you know take advantage of that net elsewhere in the draft. But then they went and got Drew Sample, who it would have made more sense to take Caleb Wilson in the second round and Drew Sample to be the Mr. Irrelevant. That would have made more sense to me. But instead, Drew Sample at pick number 52 when they could have gotten a lot of very good players at 52. I mean, Greedy Williams was taken at 46. Uh, did not like that. And then Jermaine Praz, an extremely limited linebacker out of North Carolina State. They took him in round three. Ryan Finley is probably not the answer in round four. And then I'm, they just got a bunch of guys that are one-dimensional players. Michael Jordan out of Ohio State. Ronell Wren out of Arizona State. These guys seem like situationals at best. Um, outside of Jonah Williams, I don't think the Bengals added one other starter, and Jonah Williams isn't even that high on my board in terms of guys in this draft. And that's tough to walk away from the draft with when you start with a ton of picks, including all of your own and the number 11 overall, and you really didn't get that much. Um, and in a year where they didn't add much in free agency, and everyone else in their division was adding pieces, like the Ravens were adding defensive pieces, and the Browns obviously have touched on them before, and the Steelers, even though they got rid of guys, they still still seem to be retooling and fighting for the division. Uh, I think the Bengals took a huge drop backwards. Um, now, the next team that I didn't really like what they did, and I don't want to pick on them too much because, I mean... I have a lot of fans that like them, but it's it's the New York Giants. They added a lot of guys I actually do like. I'll, I'll put this out there. Um, I liked Julian Love. Uh, I think that value in round four was great, and that was a good add. And, uh, it, you know, it's great to double up at DB with DeAndre Baker, who I also thought was pretty good. And to get a 30, it's not all that bad. But... O'Shane Zimenez and Dexter Lawrence, I felt like were a little overdrafted on the defensive line. And uh, you know, those were the two picks that they got for Odell. And uh while you know it might sound unfair because for some teams I don't I don't look at like what you traded, what you got. You know, I said, hey, Arizona didn't get a lot of value, but what they turned that value into was great. 
the Giants, they got decent value, I guess, for Odell, but what they turned it into is not very sexy. I don't really like what they did, and then obviously I told you how I feel about Daniel Jones. Uh, they got a checkdown quarterback, a nose nose tackle, uh, a very questionable cornerback because he turned a lot of people off in the whole draft process, and, uh, and then situational guys. So in the year that you... You know, just the year after taking Saquon Barkley and the year you traded Odell Beckham Jr., it just seemed like, what are the Giants doing? And you know what? Their fans are saying the same thing because a lot of people I know are Giants fans and they are very fed up with the way that things are going. And I don't blame them. I don't blame Giants fans for getting really upset about them right now. But, um, hey, this welcome, as Denzel Washington would say, Welcome to my world, Yost. This this is kind of how it goes. So, good luck, Giants fans. And uh, finally, yeah, finally, I uh, I didn't like what the Seattle Seahawks did. They the week of the draft, they traded Frank Clark and picked up another first round pick and replaced him with Lawrence Collier uh, from TCU. I, it was a huge downgrade. I know they're going to owe him money, but that's a huge downgrade that they got. And uh, then they traded the other pick out of the first round, loaded up on some picks, and took a lot of guys that were questionable. DK Metcalf they got at the end of the second round. Um, they took two other guys before him. So before you start clapping and clamoring about it, they passed on him a couple times. If they really wanted him that badly, they would have taken him earlier. But they took him because they thought, you know what? Doug Baldwin, he's possibly retiring. And we don't have a lot of other options. And we just paid Russell Wilson. So go get your man a big-time receiver. DK is looks like the best receiver of all time when you just look at him. But there's a lot of, lot of question marks about his game. Because basically, if you're not asking him to run straight and jump, uh, he doesn't add much to your football game. And I, I think he went in the right area. I think the second round was where he belonged because if he's just an, an athletic freak. But people are going to expect him to do great things early on. And uh, he's going to get locked up by some good DBs. And then after DK Metcalf, Gary Jennings from West Virginia. Phil Haynes out of Wake Forest, Cody Barton out of Utah, um, Ben Burkirvan out of Washington, Demarcus Christmas out of Florida State. A lot of these guys were just like, huh? They they didn't get a lot of value at all. And they left the draft with three, six, nine, eleven players. They left the draft with eleven players, and in a year where they are kind of needing to retool. You would think they would have added a lot of like top-notch guys. They didn't. So not a big fan of what the Seattle Seahawks did. Now, remember, nobody liked what they did the year they drafted Bruce Irwin and and uh, 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 Russell Wilson and Bobby Wagner. You know, people call that draft an F. Now, I'm not saying they lost the draft because we're not going to find out who lost the draft for a couple years. But I am going to say I didn't like what they did. And a team that made the playoffs last year, I probably have them falling out of the playoffs if I had to pick my playoff teams for next year. I think the Seattle Seahawks are going to be 8-8, 7-9, 9-7. That range, and I think they're going to be on the outside looking in when it's all said and done. All right, enough of the draft. That's a that's a lot of talk. I was trying to make it short, but you know what? It, this is my thing. I love it. We're not going to talk about the draft until next year, so I wanted to make sure I got in a lot. And, uh, of course, I was going to talk about the Browns draft. Now, moving on. My one-minute movie review is going to take a while because this week I saw Avengers Endgame. Now, I was going to do this last week, but I wanted to give everybody a chance to see it. Uh, the Russo brothers were clear on don't spoil the end game. So I went out there and I saw it three times. And I didn't mention anything until after the Russo brothers said, it's okay to now start talking about it. After they had already beaten Titanic in sales. 
And now it's time to review the podcast. Review the movie on the podcast. Uh, the big thing that stuck out to me was that they did a overlying arc for the three, the big three Avengers. Tony Stark, Iron Man, Thor, and Steve Rogers, Captain America. Th- throughout the 22 Avenger movies, these three have been the sole, like, the trio, right? They all had their trilogy of movies. Um, I mean, it, not all of them were all that important. Like, the Iron Man movies really didn't have much to do with this, like, Infinity Stone the gauntlet type things, but it was like Earth's, you know, first Avenger. You had Thor, which movies were up and down, but Ragnarok I thought was one of the best ones. And you had a lot of things that were very important to this this new movie because it was the Reality Stone as well as being worthy to pick up the hammer. They brought all these things back into this movie. And then, of course, in Ragnarok, you had more characters that came from that movie and Korg and Reek. Meek, <laughs> um, and uh, and and then of course the you know the storm break when he lost his hammer in that one. But regardless, I'm going off on a wrong, a wrong tangent. The point is, you all know those three characters have been the core of the Avengers, and I like that they all got their arc. Steve Rogers, it's always been clear he wanted to live a regular life. You know, he was happy to serve his country, but he was never happy like in the in the present. You know, he wanted, he missed Peggy Carter. He wanted that last date dance and um, he never got it. So they needed to clear that circle up. And at the end of the movie, they did. He went back in time and without, without ruffling too many time feathers, he got what he wanted in that life with Peggy Carter. Now, a lot of people are going to say, oh, did it open a new timeline? Did it affect the current timeline? It didn't affect the current timeline. We all know that doesn't happen. Maybe he started another alternate universe. That's very possible. But regardless of what he did, he returned all the stones, he returned Thor's hammer, and he went and he lived a life with Peggy Carter. I think that's totally fine. And and I'm happy for Steve Rogers because his character always needed that, always wanted the, I just want a life. And uh, that was a nice bow on that whole story. You also got Tony Stark, who you knew he was going to be the final throwdown with Thanos. He got to snap, and that was like a big redemption for him because he saw it all. You know, in New York, he was cursed with knowledge, Thanos said. He was the one that went into outer space with the nuke and came back. Um... There were plenty of things that he said, you know what, like that just throughout the series, of course, starting as the first Avenger, he was the one that started it with the I am Iron Man quote. He ends it with I am Iron Man. It it only made sense that it was him, even though, look, Captain Marvel or Hulk would have been able to live through the snap. It, it was like it. this was Tony's defining moment. And like Doctor Strange said. There was only one way it had to happen. And then he signaled to him with that one being like, hey, this is it. You know you have to do it. Go go out and finish the job. And it was really happy for Tony. It was the right send-off for him, especially since they had to write Steve Rogers and Tony Stark off. How are they going to do it right? I think that was the right way to do it, especially since Tony got that family that he wanted too, but then knew, you know what? How can I be happy when everyone else lost everything and I have everything, you know, all the money in the world. He now has a fucking farm in the woods and a daughter and he married Pepper and he wasn't able to live with himself. And it's very funny how Steve Rogers started as the guy who sacrificed it all. And at the end, he got what he finally wanted. And and then Tony Stark had everything he ever wanted. And then at the end, sacrificed himself. It's very funny how there were two pieces to the same puzzle which is kind of funny that they squared off in Civil War. And it was just a very a, a touching send-off for Tony as well. Uh, and then, of course, Thor. It, <laughs> he got to kill Thanos. He chopped his head off. So he had his moment. Um, and you also get to see him going forward because they weren't ready to write off all three of those guys. 
And Chris Hemsworth is the only one that wanted to come back. And he said he wants to be in Marvel as long as possible, which is really cool because what they've done with Thor is great. Forget about like the whole fat Thor angle, which was funny, but it's not important, uh, you know, as important as some of these other things. But they his his redeeming moment was when he went back with his mom. A lot of people think, oh, he didn't have a redeeming moment in this. No, he was he felt sorry for himself for a little bit. That's true, but like we've seen that from from all these guys, from all these characters, and he he felt sorry for himself. But while he was doing that, he was funny. The funniness stopped when he saw his mom because then he talked to her and she basically told him, "You have to be who you are, not who not Odin's son." Not like the protector of of uh, of Asgard, just who Thor is, and I think that's going to be great going forward. I don't think he's going to be Fat Thor in the next movie he's in. I think he'll be skinny by then. Uh, I love what they did with him and Stormbreaker, and kind of that like redemption of he missed, he got to cut off his head, and then everyone is saved anyway, and now he's going to get to go with the Asgardians of the galaxy. I was super pumped about that. You know going into the movie, all I wanted was Thor to join the Guardians, and that's exactly what happened. And they brought back his buddies, uh, uh, Meek and Korg, and that they were funny. They brought back Valkyrie, who's going to have her own show, and she might be involved with the Guardians too down the line. All great stuff out of Thor's timeline and Thor's whole story. And the other, the other Avengers were, were so solid too. Nat, obviously, you know, they wrote her off, and that wasn't great. They could have made her death more important. Like, I feel like her death just happened. Like, they only killed off a couple people in the last two movies when all is said and done. And Gamora is still kind of out there, but Iron Man is dead. They gave him the greatest send-off you could ever ask for. But Nat just basically got like a like a crying two minutes. That was it. And it didn't seem like all the stakes were on the line when she sacrificed herself. They kind of made that too much of a jokey, hokey scene for me. I would have liked that to feel more um, more important at the time. And I don't think they did a good job. But thought they did a great job with Hawkeye, Clint Barton. Uh, Paul Rudd's Ant-Man. His best performance yet. Nebula and Rocket skyrocketed in these rankings, no pun intended. So they did a great job with all the individual characters. I also love the callbacks that they made in these movies. You know, they they had certain callbacks to Doctor Strange with the Eye of Agamotto and how he needed to protect it. And the Ancient One was like, well, why would he have just given it up? That was a callback to Doctor Strange and why he would give it up. Uh, obviously, the I Am Iron Man and building the rescue suit for Pepper Potts and Morgan, his daughter, naming the daughter Morgan like he said he was going to. All callbacks to Tony Stark and Iron Man. Even the Lebowski thing was his first enemy, was Jeff Bridges. Funny. That's weird. And um, <laughs> Thor... They called back to Jane Foster and the worthiness of the hammer for Steve Rogers, which was back in Age of Ultron, which we're so pumped for him to finally get Mjolnir. I think that was the coolest part of the movie was when the hammer went into his hand and everyone was like, oh, like I made a noise that my girlfriend looked at me and was like, are you okay? Like, is this, this is a little strange that you're making these noises for Steve Rogers. But uh, they did such a great job calling back to, they they made it seem like all 22 movies were important. And and that was, I think, the really amazing thing that the Russo brothers did was that they made 22 movies matter in this universe, in which they didn't always matter. Those, those Tony Stark movies, those Iron Man movies didn't have to happen. But they made it relevant, and they made it all part of Tony's like lineage and how he got here. Uh, really think... Uh, Really think, though, we need to look at what they're going to do with the Avengers going forward, right? Because they can't just end this. I know they can end Avenger movies, but they still have three of the original Avengers alive. Let's assume Cap is retired and is going to die and they're not going to go back to him. Because he gave his shield to Sam Wilson, which I thought was awesome. A lot of people thought it was going to be Bucky. 
Turns out it was Sam. I thought that was a great choice anyway. And they got a TV show coming up, like a buddy cop type thing. We'll see how that goes. But I still like the decision to go with Sam Wilson there. And then, uh, and, and yeah, and then obviously Natasha and uh, and Tony died. So the three others, Hulk is now Professor Hulk. So he's not like, they kind of killed off the Hulk character, but Bruce Banner's still there and he had a broken arm or whatever he did to his arm with the snap. And then Hawkeye is obviously going to retire. They don't need to do much with that. And considering there's a Hawkeye show, it seems like he's going to be more of a mentor than anything else at this point. So I understand that. And then Thor looks like he's joining the Guardians. So depending upon what Hulk is, I feel like the Avengers are over. Now, do they start a new Avengers team? I think that'd be pretty cool. What would that Avengers team look like? You have plenty of characters in this universe. Let's go with six right off the bat. It looks like Spider-Man's going to be in this because they've got two more Spider-Man movies coming out. Tom Holland is thrilled to be in the Avengers universe, the Marvel universe. And they look like they're going to be calling on him a lot because Nick Fury is in this next Spider-Man movie. So I got Spider-Man as definitely one of the Avengers. The next one I've got is Black Panther. Now, you could go away from him because he's going to be in Wakanda a lot, but I seriously do think that he's going to be important because of just who he is and how much power he has and that they're going to need a powerful hero uh, on Earth, you know, if we're talking about Earth's Mightiest Avengers. Uh, plus, he didn't get the fairest of shake in the collaboration movies, right? In Civil War, he was kind of like just like an extra. And then in Infinity War, he got dusted real fast. And then he came back at the end of this one. But it's like, you know, he hasn't had the greatest run with the Avengers just yet. So that's why I think, especially with two more movies for him, he's going to be in the new Avengers. I think Hulk is out. So I think it's going to be six new guys. Uh, because obviously Cap's out. and yeah, You know, we just did that. Um, my next one I'm going with is Doctor Strange. Now, he's not exactly... He, I think he's having a second movie. I'm pretty sure they said that. I don't know if it's fully announced. They, they're they ready for it. It's going to happen. But while he's going to be a sorcerer, I, and you know he's going to be in New York, which is like the hub of all of this, I think that's what also makes it easier is that he can help basically Black Panther walk from Wakanda to New York or wherever they are. And I think he's going to be an important part of the Avengers. I could totally see a world where he is not in the six Avengers and just make kind of appearances throughout. But I do think he's going to be um, involved with this one. And before I forget, because I, I don't talk about Spider-Man too much in, ter in terms of this universe, but I did love that Spider-Man finally got that hug that Tony said, we're not ready for that at the end of the movie. Um, when he came back, Tony hugged him. I felt like that was a great moment. One of the better ones. It, it made me tear up a bit. Uh, I teared up a lot in the movie, but that one was a great moment. Okay, so... After Doctor Strange, after Black Panther and Spider-Man, I'm going with Ant-Man. Um, I don't see them making a ton of more Ant-Man movies, but I know people love Paul Rudd and his involvement in these movies. He's not going to be out in outer space. So I think they're going to make him the fourth Avenger in this. And, and I'm going to go a little crazy, and I'm going to have the Wasp as the fifth one. And kind of as they need to get a female in there. I don't know how, I really don't know what to expect from Captain Marvel, if they're going to include her in the actual Avengers, if they're going to put her in space more, or what's going to happen, but in terms of Earth's Mightiest Heroes, I can totally see Ant-Man and the Wasp on this team defending Earth with Black Panther, Spider-Man, and Doctor Strange. Now, for the final Avenger, you know, it, it this made me think a lot, after the first six you're going to want some diversity, right? You're going to want, you had five white guys and a white chick. So you're going to have some diversity, right? That's why you got Black Panther. That's why you got uh, um, Wasp in it. So one more different one. And, and it's going to be, it's going to be crazy, but it's not any of the ones that we have yet. It's going to be a new Avenger. Um, 
So as the final Avenger, I'm going to have this Shang-Chi, who is going to be the first Asian-American or Asian Avenger. And uh, I just think, you know, going off the wall a little bit because I don't think everything they do is so predictable. And of the characters that they've had, there's only so much you can recycle with. They have a lot of shows planned, a lot of things planned that we already know of. I think with the next crew of Avengers, and maybe they call them something different, but they're going to have, if they collaborate again, and they're going to have to, they make way too much money off these collaboration films. But the next time they collaborate, and next time they have a big team, that's who I got. Shang-Chi, Ant-Man, the Wasp, who are, by the way, two of the Avengers um, from the comics. And then uh, Spider-Man, Black Panther, and Doctor Strange. None of the Guardians make it in there. Um, no, uh, no Shuri. A lot of people think she might take up like the uh, Iron Man suit. No rescue. That's that's silly at this point. And Thor, I think, is outer space from now on. So exciting stuff. Uh, hope you saw the movie. It was phenomenal. It was so good. I have it as my favorite. Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. Uh, I, I'm I'm wrestling with with Infinity War because I enjoyed Infinity War from start to finish more consistently, but the highs of Endgame are just too much to pass up on, and that's why it's my number one movie. So that's all I'm going to talk about with uh, my one minute movie review of Avengers Endgame. Uh, a little bit longer than one minute. I think it was uh, like 14 minutes is what I went for. Regardless, it was that good of a movie. It's going to be my movie of the year. It, it it crossed off everything it was supposed to do. And all it has me is super hyped for the next one. Now, finally, before I let you guys go, I'm going to do a quick top five. My top five favorite sandwiches. Now... I don't exactly know how to like label this one because it's not exactly just five because I can make a sandwich. I'm not talking about making a sandwich like a peanut butter and jelly. I'm talking about like brand sandwiches where you go out and you get a very specific sandwich from a very specific place. But I'm not talking about chain places and I'm not talking about making it your own. So it's a very niche uh, list we're going with. So I'll explain. Number five. My favorite sandwich of all time is the Bulgo Key from Trinity Deli in Washington, D.C. When I was in college uh, and I would go out on Friday nights, Saturday was a pretty boring day for me, and I loved that. I would watch college football with uh, my roommates, and we would walk down to the deli, which was at basically the bottom of our uh, our apartment complex. And there I got, and it was a very shady neighborhood, very shady area, but the Bulgo Key sandwich, which is kind of like a Korean barbecue steak on a like sub roll, that was my go-to there. No one else got it. It was a weird menu item. I just made sure they didn't put mushrooms in it, but it was a hot like barbecue steak sandwich, and it was it's one of the greatest things I've ever had. I haven't had it since. I really miss the Bulgo key. Okay. Number four, the bacon boy on an egg everything bagel with hot sauce at Corner Bagelry in Belmar, New Jersey. In terms of after graduating and needing that hangover food, this is what I went to in my mid 20s. Uh, I, it's funny how my first two sandwiches are related to being hungover and needing that greasy food, but. I mean, in terms of a breakfast sandwich, this there was no beating this. Egg everything bagel, which is great to begin with. Hot sauce, ketchup, and a hash brown. That's what made the bacon boy instead of just a bacon, egg, and cheese. And fried egg and bacon and American cheese. Toast it up. The big trick was you had to order it there. You couldn't just order it over the phone because you might get somebody who's not really paying attention. They When they see you in person... They treat you better. That's just how I see it. But um, it's one of my my go-tos in terms of hangover foods. Haven't had it in a while. Uh, but that was certainly on the list. My number three is a black Russian from Tom Bailey's. Now, 
I believe on the Black Russian was pastrami, turkey, coleslaw, Swiss, Russian dressing on rye. But I wouldn't get it on rye. I would change up the bread. And then I wouldn't get Swiss. I would get cheddar. And just a great deli sandwich. I know a lot of people love a good deli sandwich. That is my go-to. It was across the street from my parents' house. And uh, that was like anytime we would go there, I'm like, give me the black Russian. It, they load it up there. I love Russian uh, um, Russian dressing mixed with the coleslaw. I think that's a great combo. And pastrami is amazing. Uh, my number two, this is where it got really tough. Because two and one, depending upon a time in my life, this was my number one. But number two, the classic Italian at A. Letteri's, also in D.C., I'm not even a huge Italian guy, but when it came to like an Italian sub, this was like legit. Hole in the wall deli where you're in the wrong neighborhood of of Brookland in Washington DC. I think it was actually over the track, so I think that would make it the heights. But uh it was right outside of Gallaudet, which was the heart of hearing school. And just at a crossroads that you really wouldn't find yourself walking around in. And then you end up walking into a hole in the wall where you're like, this could be a very dangerous and very bad mood for us. But my friend Tom told me about it, vouched for the place, and said it had a great sandwich. We go in, and all of a sudden, you feel like you're in Little Italy inside of this. Like, it's, it's unbelievable. You like transformed. It's almost like in one of those Doctor Strange. Uh, like portals. It's crazy. And they had just the best Italian deli in there. And they wrap it up tight and you pack it up and you make that kind of like your weekend sandwich for like six bucks. It was hard to beat and for the longest time my favorite sandwich in the world. Uh, A. Letteri's. But my number one, and this is a recent development, last couple years, there's a place in Hoboken called Fiori's. And they have a special every day of the week. And on Saturdays, it's roast beef, al jus, with their homemade mozzarella cheese on whatever piece of bread you get. But I like the torpedo sub roll. And oh my, it is so good. I mean, I was going up to my buddy Tom's last weekend, and he lives in Wyckoff. And I went 45 minutes out of the way to go get two of these sandwiches so that I could have half Sunday, half Monday, and then my girlfriend could have half Sunday, half Monday, because it is just so good. Even leftover, when you know you have to leave it in a fridge and then heat it up, and that kind of dries it out a little bit. Even leftover, it's one of the best sandwiches I've ever had. But fresh, dripping in the al jus sauce, the hot roast beef, and the homemade mozzarella, it's just unbeatable. It's the best sandwich. And it is my number one sandwich. Now, I don't know how to personally define this list because it's not homemade sandwiches. And it's not like I I wasn't going to allow fast food or Jersey Mike's or anything like that on this list where it's mass produced. I want it to be local local sandwiches. And that was my number one. Uh, What do you guys have? Is there a place in New Jersey I'm missing? Is there a place in D.C. that I'm missing? Or anywhere in between... And, and outside of those two cities uh, or two places. Let me know what you guys have as your favorite sandwiches. Shout out to Tom Scotto for teaching me about A. Letteri's. Shout out to Chris Heine for teaching me about Fiori's and Hoboken. Um, the Bull Goki, that was me. But, uh, but yeah, those are my top five sandwiches. And finally, before I let you guys go, do a little night watch party. We're six... Six episodes of Game of Thrones in this final season. And we're down through four. And what's happened is a lot in the last two episodes. Arya got her big moment. She finally killed the Night King. We thought, who was going to do this? Was it going to happen in the finale? I'm a little surprised it happened in episode three. I was a little surprised it wasn't Jon Snow. But after hearing the writers talk about it, they're like, you know what? Jon Snow has had his moments. Not everything has to be about him. I'm a little concerned, to be honest, with the writing. I've said this in the past, that ever since they've gone off book, they've gotten sloppy. And it's true. I think they did. I thought Arya's scene killing the Night King was awesome. 
But you know what? It's tough to review this show mid-season because they have so much going on. So I don't want to get too much into it. Other than the fact that Jorah died exactly how I thought he was going to do. Uh, you know, defending uh, um, defending Khaleesi. And uh, Danny also lost one of her dragons last week when they weren't fucking paying attention. Because they didn't see ships on the water. Like, that's... They, they suggested she forgot about them. She's in war right now. So... I'm I'm a little I'm a little frustrated with the lack of like they're not plot holes but just the lack of attention to detail that like her dragon would just get sniped from the water like they would see these fucking ships and then uh, again Jon Snow a couple more crucial mistakes in battle and yet he lives don't get me wrong the acting is still phenomenal the characters have been brought up for so long that it's like of course we're gonna still love the show but i gotta admit i'm not loving everything that's happened um the sequences have been great you know Tyrion and and varus talking about possibly going with Jon snow now that they know his true lineage his true lineage is out because he had to tell sansa and sansa had to tell basically the whole kingdom by getting uh Tyrion involved this was a mistake, and and now Arya is on her way to go uh, kill Cersei, which is great. Her and the Hound are basically like, hey, we've got unfinished business killing our fuckers. So they're going to do that, which is awesome. They sh- should have had this going on. Um, and they they killed Beric Dondarrion. He was a fine kill. Uh, they killed off Masande in what was a pretty, pretty brutal kill, even though. Would have liked her to just grab Cersei when they kicked her off the wall. Regardless, I think what you know, thinking about this on the fly, now that it's not in conversation, this either needs to be a conversation where I can have someone arguing with me, or I'm gonna wait till the end of the season. So I think that's it for Night's Watch Party. Uh, other than this is gonna be a huge battle coming up this week, Mother's Day. It's the Queen Mother versus the Mother of Dragons. Huge battle between the mothers on Mother's Day. It's going to be great. Parkhouse is opening tomorrow. It's Mother's Day this weekend. You've got the NBA lottery coming up. NFL mini camps, rookie mini camps, baseball seasons on like getting really into the swing of things. Lots to cover next week on the Jake. Thank you for listening. Have a good night. Waiting for